0: Welcome to the Fulfilled Podcast. The podcast designed to spark fundraising inspiration for your nonprofit through thought provoking interviews with world leading fundraising experts. Fulfilled brings a unique interview style approach where we ask the most important questions of our expert guests to help nonprofits excel in their fundraising efforts feel inspired and feel fulfilled with knowledge so your nonprofit can continue to make a positive impact and create change for a better world. Hi everyone, Jake here from Fulfilled. Today I'm very excited to be coming to you from the Peter McCullum Cancer Center in Melbourne City. Today I'm talking with the FFIA, CFRE, Philanthropy <laughs> and Fundraising Director, Carl Young. Nice to meet you. Yeah, Carl, thank you for coming on today. So. Just looking quickly through your long list, I'm only gonna pick out a few things here, but your team has won such awards as the FIA 2019 Fundraising Team of the Year, uh, 2018 National Awards for Fundraising Excellence for uh, Donor Acquisition and Major Gifts, uh, 2017 Donor Renewal for um, Charities Over 5 Million category. You've also It's also just recently been the um, FIA 2020 Awards. How did your team do?
1: Um, we did quite well. We got Young Fundraiser of the Year, uh, Best uh, Supporter Experience as well. Um, I was very privileged to be given a fellowship as well. So, uh, but uh, I think it's really more of a reflection of, of the team and the team ethic. And uh, we've got a good team of, uh, I think, really knowledgeable fundraisers. And uh, without the greater collective, combined with, you know, at the end of the day, the donors, uh, none of this would have been possible without them or in particular, you know, the donors wanting to do something for others, as yeah, simple as that.
0: Yeah, oh great. No, it's a great achievement. So, when you think back over your career now, where did it all begin for
1: you? Um, yeah, I'm showing my age now. So, <laughs> um, it really probably began with, uh, you know, the Boomtown Rats and Bob Geldof and uh, Live Aid and uh, what he did, and um, that really sparked for me. A desire to help uh, those in need and particularly uh, the third world and uh, from that I started to volunteer and then um, you know went to university and uh, actually discovered that I didn't really want to do marketing per se but I wanted my career to have uh, um, some real kind of tangible benefit for others Um, And uh, from that um, I started to do some volunteer work at uh, World Vision that actually led to uh, employment. Um, Originally I looked at uh, using my uh, uh, previous skills to go over to uh, you know Africa perhaps uh, for voluntary services overseas and that wasn't quite the right time and as I said I uh, did some volunteer work for World Vision and uh, I became like so many others an accidental fundraiser yeah
0: so when you think back to those early days maybe world vision those first few years what were some key lessons you learned about fundraising
1: Um, i think uh, it's you know the the standard ones of uh, make sure that uh, you're inspiring and um, emotional in your communications to the donors you know so really inspire and talk to their hearts but then When it comes to your uh, evaluation of the programs, be non emotional, be data driven and analytical. Um, And I do remember in my early career, some people actually thought I was a little bit, you know, kind of not cold, but, you know, it's like, oh, well, you know, you don't care about the people or something like this because I was looking at the data. (laughs) And my argument used to be, well, um, you can see the results that they're having an impact. The data is helping me make informed decisions because. You know, I'm uh, the custodian of the donor's dollar, as well as those donor dollars for the beneficiary. And I feel as fundraisers, we have a great duty of care to our constituents, the donors in particular, to use their every dollar as wisely as humanly possible to actually maximize the net returns uh, for our beneficiaries. And so then to be, you know, data-driven, things that will work, not to do things that might work. Or, you know, you often hear, well, you know, it's good for the brand, it's good for awareness. Well, if that's your objective, that's absolutely well and good. Mm. But as a fundraiser, my job is to raise net returns to particularly where I'm at now, is to help you know, people diagnosed with cancer and uh, save people's lives who uh, could die from cancer. So my objective is to fill that. And so, yeah, so going back to the early days, certainly be emotional, inspirational, inspire people to engage. I love that side of it but then the analytical side, make sure that you're able to channel where you're inspiring um, and how you're being emotional to maximize the best returns.
0: Yeah, great, well, I'm very excited now to know that your approach to um, fundraising is to be very data-driven, which is great to hear. Um, So you've worked for such organizations as World Vision, uh, the National Heart Foundation of Australia, and now 10 years with Peter McCullum. Um, How do you think donor engagement has changed over your career?
1: Well, it may surprise you. I've been in this game for over 20 years, even though I only look like you know I'm about 30. Um, but I think the channels of com- donor engagement has particularly changed. So I think the principles or the fundraising principles of donor engagement has not changed that much. So I still believe donors prefer one-to-one engagement wherever possible, but naturally the ability to scale that level of engagement and to have the internal resources to talk to 100,000 of your Uh, constituents one-on-one, is a little bit difficult, shall we say, if not uh, impossible. What has changed, I think, has been, you know, the channels uh, of communication and uh, the choices on offer for the constituents has diversified greatly. We talk about digital uh, disruption, for example, and, um, you know, today we hear about, you know, digital is is the next answer for constituents and so forth, but everybody's struggling to scale up and get genuine net returns from the digital area. But if I go back 20 years ago, you'd probably say that DM was king, you know, there was broadcast marketing, would still give you appropriate returns, you could probably be very uh, dependent on your um, analysis and the ratios and the returns that you'd be calculating and so forth. But then about 20 years ago, or just over that, um, believe it or not, I was a, you know, I first did face-to-face in um, you 97 know, for my sins. And, um, you know, so what the, di- what the sector did was offer another huge communication channel. And so instead of the natural uh, funnel process of, you know, you have DM acquisition and you convert them to RG, you kind of went straight to RG and you suddenly scaled up. So you give them two choices and then you'd start to quarantine Uh, many of your constituents from DM to RG. So we introduced a new channel and then over the years we've watched those channels diversify and fragment. And I often talk about now um, the challenges for the sector in many ways is that, um, you know, uh, I talk about tributaries. You've got lots of small little uh, channels of acquisition and so forth trying to funnel in now, whereas before you would be much more Guarantee to actually have a bigger volume from one single uh, acquisition source, whether that's DM or face-to-face. And now you're trying to do it with Facebook um, or EDMs or those that are coming to your website and so forth. So I think the choice of uh, how a donor can engage and respond has amplified, Mm -hmm. and that has given operational challenges for the sector as well. Yeah. And a lot of misunderstanding, I believe.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that'll be a great setup for our talk when we get into fundraising budgets for sure. But when you look back, um, as you say, over the past twenty plus years, what's been the most successful campaign you've been part of, and what made it successful?
1: I, I think it's difficult to put put one there or pick one. Um, I think the one the, the one area that maybe I kind of go, I'm pretty proud of. And it's really the collective team is, at Peter Mac, you know, we went from you know, relatively low revenue and donor base you know, with about 13,000 donors um, about 10, 11 years ago. You know, we have over 100,000 uh, donors now, and our revenue is uh, quite significant. And we've sustained that over the last five to six years. And it still feels very much like a, a new job. And um, you know, we do work in an environment where there's a lot of turnover, Um, in staffing levels and I think it's a real sense of achievement for myself and the team that they've maintained this level of high performance and excellence for for so long Um, so that would be kind of across all fundraising aspects and the other thing that I do you know have a quite proud of and uh, I, I see the fruits of, of the labor that I did there it was um, back in my world vision days really I, I, I set up a particular structure for vision generation the, the youth side of um, the 40-hour famine I think they've just been changed their name to um, what's it vision youth I think now or something like that or uh, youth something like that anyway um, and we actually got a, a cluster of um, Young people to actually set up really their own membership to actually go out and um, uh, help those in need in the third world, and from that came Oaktree. Um, there's many of their of those, you know, founding members that are in the fundraising sector. Um, you've interviewed one yourself not so long ago, um, uh, Kylie, and um, to see them out there doing good in the world, and to think that you've had that influence on. These young people, and then they're in turn uh, paying it forward for better definition. I think um, I get real satisfaction that Vision Generation is still going on 20 years after I stood in a room and said, "Look, put something in place that your grandchildren are going to be proud of." And yeah, to actually be able to look back and go, "Wow, that that catalyst—it uh, was a February uh, uh, meeting at, at World Vision. I remember it very well." And. Um, in uh, twenty, uh, was it? Oh, Getting the years wrong. In uh, in two thousand, um, to see all of those people having an impact, um, I get a kick out of that.
0: Yeah, it seems like you put a great emphasis on innovation and being disruptive, and your fundraising team. And is that something you encourage your team today to do?
1: It's an interesting one. The the word innovation and what people mean by innovation, and I've I've never been um, one to believe in innovation for innovation's sake. I think it's looking for the best practice within something, within the fundamentals of what you know the donor should uh, uh, respond to, but then equally to look at uh, the uh, gaps in the analysis and often that, if you look in your data driven, that will actually tell you where you should put your innovative efforts and, um, you know, do, I thought, have we done anything at Peter Mac that you would say is truly uh, innovative? We've put in new acquisition activities and um, you know, we're doing a value exchange that I think is uh, relatively innovative, but all the principles are based on best practice fundraising about how you engage with donors and then looking at the data and go, okay, we'll make these incremental tweaks. And some of the innovation, in particular, I'd say that we have been innovative is looking at in the quest area, for example, how we categorise, you know, the data, how we break it down, so in turn we make the best um, form, uh, what's it, the best decisions of how to and who to engage with.
0: Yeah, great. And your role, which is, um, you know, you've been here for almost ten years, which is a great feat for um, <laughs> any fundraiser in any organisation. But having the role of Philanthropy and Fundraising Director. What does your job entail? Um,
1: I often joke with the team, I'm Jack of all trades, master of none. Mm -hmm. Um, And, um, you know, as uh, one of the leaders within the team, my job is really though to service the team, to empower the team, and um, uh, I get a real kick about um, helping them translate fundraising theory into operational practice. And I think you know if I look at anywhere that Peter Mac has been inv- innovative it's often in that translation uh, and to making sure that the team you know even the use of language within fundraising I think is quite ambiguous so make sure that we're all consistent on the language and that um, we're all got the the same vision and understanding of how we execute it so so my job is in part operational and empowering the team so that they can uh, make informed decisions that have got a good rationale for their decisions, uh, that they get excited about their, their job. Uh, but also, particularly on the philanthropy side, I'm out there personally engaging with donors, asking them for money. Mm-hmm. And you know, really, I, I would never ask a... You hear that cliche of manager saying, I'd never ask a team member to do something that I wouldn't do. And I think in fundraising, um, that's never more applicable, because if you're asking your staff member to go out and engage in a particular manner and ask a constituent for a gift, equally if you're not willing to do it or you can't do it, um, then um, I don't think it's fair to be asking a team member. And if you want to expand that even further, just take face-to-face. You know, um, I think uh, a lot of managers and uh, the sector might misunderstand um, all of these wonderful people who are great advocates out there for numerous charities, going out there engaging with the public, asking for money and many people are you know many experienced fundraisers have never done that. and I think um, it's a great skill to have so um, so going back to your question, um, yeah part of my job is being prepared to make the ask, knowing how to make the ask, um, ensuring and empowering my team and training them up to do the same to be um, as effective as possible, and hopefully we all do it and have a good time at the same time.
0: Yeah, great. And you you talk about face to face. I mean, why it has face to face been such a great acquisition channel for, um, let's say, Peter Mac, and ha- how's that changed over the years?
1: Um. So. I don't think really the principles have changed that much, um, and the reason it's been successful is because again, if we go back to some of the earlier uh, conversation, is what the do donors respond to, and it's one-to-one engagement. You know, so you can have that conversation, you can learn about the individual, you can find out, you know, what they're interested in. Um, You know if they've got any questions that they don't understand you have the opportunity to discuss that with the individual um, and then hopefully inspire and motivate them to actually do something for for others and so really face-to-face works because it's the best practice elements of donor engagement Um, why has it worked well for uh, Peter Mac and and for other entities or um, again because I think again how we look at the data um, who we should be engaging with how we ensure of our compliance, uh, how we ethically uh, talk to uh, the constituents. I think we really do all that well and that's about training you know, the team right down to the advocates who are representing our charity mm-hmm. uh, and really they're not, um, what's the word, um, they shouldn't be seen as exterior to the organization or, or remote, they are an extension of our organization. We need to respect those individuals who are doing a very uh, difficult job on occasions. You know, um, uh, they are basically a real advocate of our cause and and so our engagement is quite significant in the training and compliance aspects uh, of that. Um, And then within the team, you know, the data that we have around that really does actually then measure the fundraising uh, and outcomes in in real time. So because regular giving isn't just really hit a green button and you let it ride, um, things can change very quickly in real time. So our data analytics is really strong in that and uh, very evidence-based. And um, you'll see presentations that will show you some of basically, you know, it's always amused me. um, When you say, oh, well, face-to-face is um, not very good because it um, recruits young people and and so forth. Well, that's because you're Mm -hmm. targeting the wrong people. Mm -hmm. You know, we know, um, uh, you know, older donors are generally more loyal and and better donors than younger uh, donors in general. That doesn't mean we don't love our younger donors and (laughs) value them and the like, but you know they're not likely to stick, so making sure you've got the right criteria to know who you're engaging and then picking up if the volumes um, uh, go, go awry in there. But again, going back to your question, what's changed um, in the face-to-face uh, sector or the volumes? The volumes actually haven't changed that much when it comes to rec- recruitment. What has changed is that with good uh, compliance and better due diligence, I think the quality of the agencies is better um, that means there's, a, in general, a greater quality of donor acquisition. I don't mean there are pockets where people can do incremental improvement. I think there's better knowledge within the sector of what is a good donor and what the metrics should be uh, for me- measurement. I think um, you know with the uh, development of the PFRA, there's been a greater education to the charities of what they need to be in place in their supply chain management. You know so they can't absolve responsibility so again me talking about um, you know the advocates you can't just let them go out there you know they are an extension of uh, of your organization you know they need to be valued loved but trained appropriately um, but equally then with the agencies similarly uh, they're much more aware of their Um, obligations and uh, the standards that they need to adhere to. So for me, um, it's one of the channels when it comes to engagement that has truly got its house in order. I'm particularly proud of um, you know my part and the board of the PFRA that have played a part in that and um, I I think it's got um, a great uh, life expectancy uh, face-to-face. But again I'm giving you a long answer to what seems to be a very uh, innocent and, and short question. What has changed, though, and really for every fundraising channel, is the cost of recruitment. Um, so, you know, it's a bit of supply and demand. If you have more people in the market, naturally, you know, there's more competition, and generally, that'll drive up uh, costs as well. Um, and I think that appropriate break-even point. For your annual uh, investment, I think that's creeping out a bit. So the net returns are still fantastic, but you're not getting the returns. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I could break even. My break even point when I worked at another charity, and I won't give numbers Mm -hmm. exactly, but I'd break even in two months. Yeah. Now it, you know, it's. (laughs)
0: <laughs> A bit longer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so just before going into the um, cost of fundraising and budgets, for smaller, uh, smaller organisations out there who don't necessarily have the budget to do face-to-face, what do you consider could be the next best thing for them?
1: I think it's really they've got to break down where to put their energies for investment um, and to understand when that break-even point will be for that respective uh, investment. I think for any charity, you want to diversify Your portfolio and not have all your eggs in one acquisition uh, budget Um, and again I think there's a misunderstanding about the the amount of money that would be required for you know a face-to-face you know acquisition or an investment and uh, it's really about mapping out what's an appropriate amount and it could be that a small investment in face-to-face is appropriate but equally you should be looking at your other programs Um, and it really just depend on the development of that charity at that time so um, you know, I'm not particularly necessarily a great fan of uh, Gala Balls because of their ROI from a staffing point of view, from the investment in their activity. But sometimes that's the best way for the charity to get that initial net return so then they can invest a little bit further. So really my answer uh, to that question would be to have an investment strategy, not just, ta- not just looking at, well, we can't do face-to-face. Well, it's really the question is looking across all the portfolio of uh, donor acquisition opportunities and going, which ones can we do? Which ones are appropriate for this point in time and not have a one-year short-term plan? So, um, and similarly for us, you know, some of um, the investment we were allowed to do was because of the quick wins with some other acquisition areas, but we always had a plan of an appropriate investment portfolio. Um, and just to extend this kind of discussion a bit further, we often hear about um, the terminology cost of fundraising. The moment we go down that terminology, the whole sector, in my opinion, has got that wrong. Yeah. You know, um, It's a, a can't win argument, a, a can't win phrase. You know, the public, for example, you know, a surprise. There's a cost of fundraising, um, but what do we mean by cost of fundraising? So you asked me about acquisition. So let's just break down what cost of fundraising really is. Well, first of all, there's a cost of compliance. So most donors are completely understand. You need to be PCI compliance, privacy compliance. Mm-hmm. Um, that comes at a cost. You have to have the infrastructure in place for that. Um, we need to have data protection. For our constituents, our donors, that needs to be in place. So that's a cost. Okay. Then, going, expanding on your previous question cost of acquisition or uh, investment in finding more donors. If a donor's committed to the cause, they completely understand that you need to find more people like them to actually then address the problem that they're passionate about. So, I think we should strip away cost of fundraising, understand there's an appropriate cost of investment for the charity and then looking to diversify where they put those energies. And then of course at the end of that scale there's a cost of appreciation or of thanking the constituents and getting that balance appropriate. Again, how t- you know in a perfect world you'd thank all of your one hundred uh, sorry, hundred thousand uh, donors uh, personally, you go up and shake their hand say thank you, you take them and show them the work that they would had an impact. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know many charities could actually execute that, Mm -mm -mm -mm. Um, but we need to find ways to engage uh, and show our appreciation to the the constituents and uh, demonstrate the impact that they've had.
0: So is there a secret formula formula that you'll
1: use to determine
0: uh, how much an organisation should invest in their fundraising?
1: I don't think there's a secret formula. I think, um, I think it's being clear on your strategy and um, knowing the fundraising fundamentals. So, you know, for example, indiv- individual giving should be your primary focus. Uh, we often hear you know, about corporates um, you know, being a source and things of that nature. And, and don't get me wrong, corporates have value and so forth. But individual giving is where it's at, you know, and generally it's bequests, major gifts and regular giving out the Holy Trinity. Um, We can always do more in corporate, but within each of those, so it's having a diversified portfolio, having your overarching strategy of knowing where you're going to increase overall uh, individual volumes of uh, donors. Um, And then looking at your communication channels and acquisition channels, and then looking at uh, those really key metrics as to what is the cost per lead, cost per recruit, cost per acquisition, Um, and often that's where I think the sector gets it wrong, it stops at cost per acquisition. The real secret formula for better definition is good metrics and and, and analysis. Um, It's then getting down to cost per transaction, and I think that's the one area that sometimes falls off in the analysis for many, not all, but for some. And uh, there's a staff member that's got one of my slides from a presentation that goes through the different stages of you know what you should be evaluating once you've actually started you know cost per lead activity. And then you're going through uh, what's it, uh, cost per acquisition and then ultimately to how do they transact? But then after they transact, you know, how often do they transact? <laughs> Um, And then referencing that to your original investment and then seeing not only on ROI, but staying focused on net returns. So it's that cost, uh, so it's that um, combination of cost per, obviously, transaction, the cost of investment, ROI, but what's your net. And I think that's um, when it comes to engaging and understanding. with whether it's board, your, your team, ultimately, it's about net. Mm. And we can get really hung up on ROI. <laughs> and that gets way out of context <laughs> on occasions.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was about to, um, the next question was around um, forecasting and planning for your budgets. But I think you've given um, uh, 12 months in advance. And I think you've given great insights to that already. Is there anything you'd like to add to that, though?
1: Um, I was always surprised. I, I've worked a couple of different places, and I've gone in, and I was always surprised when the respective manager often didn't own their budget. And um, I love budgets. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love numbers, yeah. and it's one of my favourite times of the year—the reforecast. And for me, you know, you're starting to see—you know—the budget is a translation of the operational plan, which is the translation of your overarching strategic objectives. So the budgets really are cementing what operationally you intend to do. And then, f- so for me, I think the, the key point of that is having, it doesn't matter if they're a relatively new staff member um, or a junior staff member or an up and coming, I think it's about the, the staff member owning their budget and going through that learning process of being able to articulate every line. Mm. You know, so, um, you know, we sit down and have um, a budget session with uh, each respective man- manager, and they've basically got to explain every line. And I think you find that's you know, very empowering and um, you know, helps you coach them if you identify a gap, but similarly, they often can coach you.
0: Mm, yeah, I'm
1: sure. Especially
0: as things have changed over the years. Oh, yeah. When you think, um, well, for your current role, we'll, get, we'll say with uh, Peter McCallum, which distribution channels, marketing channels, give your organization the, hi- the highest ROI?
1: Ah, well, see, that's such a dangerous question, because mm-hmm. <laughs> um, ROI or net, you see. Yeah. Um, so ROI, though, would generally, again, and it's how you budget. So bequests generally from an ROI would be the greatest, but um, not always the net. Mm. So it depends on the respective year. So um, it's really, we look at it from across all programs, uh, our, our um, ROI. So, but bequests is probably the easiest, Trust and foundations. But again, it's um, a little out of context when you look at what you need to achieve uh, sufficient net through the other channels.
0: Yeah, and um, I guess, yeah, bequests and can take a while and dependent on so many things. I think when you look at um, certain channels that you know will deliver in a certain time timeframe, um, w- which channels come to mind?
1: Um, Well particularly in this changing environment, um, regular giving is still uh, pretty consistent and um, uh, and, uh, the assumptive modeling that we do really does help us to predict the next five years of what will happen. Similarly, believe it or not in bequests, we've got some really good modeling that allows us to anticipate what's going to happen the next year and subsequent years Um, and again I think that's down to some of the um, donor uh, criteria and the different, uh, se- uh, what's it, estate segments that we've uh, put in place. And uh, one of those, for example, is, um, you know, a confirmed donor, uh, a confirmed bequester, for example, and then a known donor and uh, so forth. And um, we can actually then average out the value of those respective ones and then look at five-year rolling average. And um, there's a few other things I can throw in there. And, um, you yeah, we're able to predict <laughs> Touch wood yeah, yeah. Uh, relatively accurately, but direct mail is still very predictable uh, of what w- the returns you'll get based on response rates and average gifts and so forth, and the, mo- uh, and the number of activities that you'll go out to, and then the volume. So, you know, again, the basics individual giving, and then with major gifts, uh, similarly, we can predict pretty accurately the strength of our pipeline. Um, so, you know, we will you know, obviously get told of the need and so forth and how much it would be desirable that we can raise, Um, but really we look at our pipeline and the likelihood of those constituents giving or uh, giving higher and um, it's based on solid analysis.
0: So my next question was actually going to be, how does your team calculate um, the <laughs> highest performing channels? But I don't think I need to go there. Instead, I'll rephrase the question. In, what would be your advice to other organizations about how they could be more data-driven?
1: Why, everything's got to be data-driven. <laughs> so I mean, really, it starts, firstly, uh, with your constituent, uh, with your database. And so you need a really good uh, and appropriate database and capturing the right data. Um, then it's combined with your transactional uh, behavior. And looking at those first are going to be the best determinants of how a donor is likely to behave in the future. So you do need someone that has that uh, data insights um, internally. And if you don't have that um, internally, there are a myriad of uh, really good um, fundraising agencies that you can bring in uh, to assist you for those insights so whether you're a fledgling uh, charity or your board needs um, assistance to understand that is bringing that um, external support and I think that's one I've been very fortunate to have some really good mentors uh, around me and I've learned so much from uh, a myriad of different agencies and um, you know I've got Jennifer Dubell who's uh, you know really just been a, a great life mentor for me um, but then there's you know, uh, formerly Pareto and Sean Triner and his insights and you know, I learned from him. Um, so one of the tactics I'd say that we do very well at Peter Mac is that we don't just look to have all the knowledge internally, we source externally to sense check our thinking. And I think you can't go uh, wrong with that and always to have that little bit of a hybrid model uh, because you're going to get some natural attrition with your teams. Um, so when that, you know, knowledge transfer occurs, you know, you've got a service provider if they're a good one and, and reliable, that can help ensure that you maintain that knowledge transfer internally. But equally, then, if they're helping you capture the data, you've got someone that uh, you can draw down on as a resource to yourself learn from, your teams to learn from, and then if you need to educate board or other internal stakeholders, you've got more. Um, impartial information to demonstrate why you're taking this particular tactic.
0: Yeah, great. And um, what channels uh, have given you the smallest returns? You know, just ones that you've tested and you have found, <laughs> well, that's not quite for us, let's not do that again. Well, I don't
1: know. I'd, I'd never say never. <laughs> um, you know, and everyone who knows me would go, he's going to say digital. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Um, I think you've got to be prepared to test, though. So you know, so while I'm saying tongue-in-cheek in digital now, maybe in the future there's mm-hmm. going to be greater scale, and that's not to say that even at Peter Mac we haven't got value. We've got some great value out of digital activities and Facebook and social media and so forth. But that's again where you need agencies and other people to know, you know, keep a, an ear out to the market of what's happening, mm-hmm. and kind of go, okay, I, there's a beautiful nugget there that looks like it's worth testing with, um, and be prepared to a degree to fail. I think that, you know, I talked about there needs to be a greater understanding we need to invest and appropriately invest and appropriately invest and test. So in answering your question, there's, uh, I could probably give you a long list of things that haven't worked beautifully. (laughs) You know, but we've tested them and, you know, being able to identify that these are unlikely to generate sufficient net returns or an appropriate break-even point, and um, you know, one example might be: I think there was online lead generation was the big thing for the time frame, and some people I think who were early adopters may have made it work, whereas um, for others, when they did it, it was never going to break even for them, and that environment changed. So, really, the answer is: um, test, be happy. Uh, to invest and understand that um, you need to be diversifying your portfolio, and then if you can scale it up, continue. But if the uh, metrics demonstrate it's unlikely, then you have to know when to cease doing that activity.
0: Yeah, don't overtest.
1: <laughs> yeah, and again, that goes back to your—you know—when we talk about innovation and the next great thing. So, what is that next uh, great thing? And um, Innovation for innovation's sake, I'm not a fan of. So, if, I think when you're testing, keep the principles, the fundraising principles, at the core of your decision-making process, and I think you're much more likely to have a innovative or test or positive testing outcome.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. Well, your team, yourself, and your team have been recognised for many great things over the years. And what stands out as, you know, one achievement or possibly one award that. Um, that You're highly proud of for you and your team.
1: Um, oh, that's pretty easy actually, and that was last year's. We got fundraising team of the year, um, and you know, I actually feel quite emotional when I think about that um, because because I think what the team has delivered over the years has been quite it's been so sustainable. Um, there's been so many uh, individuals that have contributed to the success of uh, uh, Peter meck and um, you know what we've been able to deliver to you know. Uh, cancer patients and the like Um, and often it's the program manager or the fundraising director or the executive director often gets the accolades or the attention but uh, we've got a team member that's been working that's been a Peter Mac for over 22 years and processed hundreds if not millions of of donations over that time Um, comes in works hard never gets that light shine on 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 them and you know it's all the different components make a successful team and without the back-end staff without the front-end staff it all falls apart so when we got uh, fundraising team of the year it was kind of a you know uh, coming to the end of that kind of journey and that uh, recognition right across every individual of how they've contributed to that so that, that's the one that I, I was re- I, I was waiting for them <laughs> to announce it and I was just like, please, please, I really want this one. So,
0: so why do you think your team won that one?
1: Um, I think, again, it's for consistent best practice uh, fundraising. I think it's ethical fundraising as well. Mm. I think uh, you know, they're strong on the uh, compliance. Um, but again, you know, they've been able to demonstrate the, you know, the donor volumes and the net returns, and um, you know, the, um, almost without exception, each uh, staff member is involved in the sector, trying to give back to the sector as well. So um, I think it was a whole number of uh, factors, but they're just really good. Mm-hmm, <laughs> you know, yeah. So I just uh, hang on their coattails.
0: Yeah, so you, um, you lead from the front, which is great to hear. as you mentioned earlier, you wouldn't put someone in a situation that you wouldn't do yourself. And how do you create that donor-centric culture within your team? Well, uh,
1: was well, interesting, that one. Um, because in a sense, that's the second focus for us. We're beneficiary-centric. Mm. And um, the donors play a part in uh, how we can impact our beneficiaries. Uh, and so the team in are not donor-centric, whereby it can create uh, silos and friction within the team. They're beneficiary-centric. And they're trying, and they r- realise that the donor is engaged with the organisation, and ultimately, the impact that we can have. And I think that really helps give them clarity, of focus of when they're engaging with any uh, constituent. They're looking at that constituent from what's the greater good for the org- organisation and our ultimate goal. Um, and then, of course, um, we're always looking at to how best we can make those people uh, who donate to uh, Peter Mac feel truly appreciated and understand the impact that they're having and again it's coming back to that emotional side and that inspirational side Um, not while I talk about analytics and uh, that drives a lot of our decision uh, process you know the whole team are aware we might talk numbers but behind every number is a donor Mm -hmm. and and so I think our focus of where we ultimately want to get to is consistent
0: Yeah, great. And can you recall a time when team morale was at its lowest point, and how did you get through that tough time?
1: Uh, Normally, it's when I'm doing dad jokes, and morale (laughs) does drop quite a lot uh, then. Um, uh, I think I've been quite fortunate, most of the teams I've worked with um, have been, I think, uh, had good high morale, Um, and I can't go into too much detail, but there was a time where um, uh, an external environment did impact us quite greatly and there was a rather negative uh, television program that um, sensationalized and spun some facts that were inaccurate and um, you know affected the agency work for and you know there was someone uh, one of the agency's uh, representatives you know it just had a um, a young child, and he lost his job because the agency had to, we had to stop working with the agency, and, and so forth. And and it was really frustrating for the team because you know um, we don't have that voice that some you know media channels do, and they can do a, a blanket statement without necessarily all the facts behind it. And. It was one of our best, and still is <laughs> our best performing <laughs> program. Mm-hmm. And uh, to see it slighted in the media, and then to have donors call in, and um, you know, you know, I took a call from a donor, there and I, I, I apologise for being so cryptic, but um, I don't particularly, you know, want any extra media attention as a result. But you know, I still remember a call from a donor, uh, a fifty-year-old a, a, a male. Ringing in, crying because of what he'd seen on the television, and um, you know, and I'm trying to reassure him that it wasn't factual, and you know, or it'd been spun out of context, and so for a couple of weeks, the whole team, you know, like we'd all taken a hit, and it was like um, out of our control, and um, uh, so that's probably one of the the darkest moments, and and I think that's one of the struggles of. of uh, fundraisers, um, you know, I think um, because sometimes the public don't understand the science and the art of fundraising, and I, I, you know, that label of cost of fundraising and what it truly represents, and because there's a lot of misunderstanding there, combined with, um, let alone the the bureaucracy of uh, different legislative requirements across different states and uh, that, that all those issues, because that's not are uh, often uh, understood that sometimes um, you know, fundraisers you know have to work through and understand um, uh, you know that it 's not fully understood outside of their environment um, but uh, but we're facilitators to a to a, a greater objective, and that's the thing to be really proud of.
0: Mm, yeah, for sure. Um, so, what roles do you look to recruit in the fundraising team at Peter Mac, and how do you get the best out of the people who fill these positions? Two big questions in there.
1: Um, well, again, it depends. I think on the evolution of the team, and you know, um, at Peter Mac. Um, as we've grown, we've we've. You know we've adjusted our organizational structure and um, who we've needed to recruit and obviously most of those roles would um, reflect the best practice uh, principles of fundraising and um, you know the holy trinity of you know um, individual giving managers so to cover DM and uh, regular giving, bequest manager, f- uh, philanthropy manager, very really good database manager, support engagement manager, so really all the you know, the facets of the donor journey and making sure you've got really subject matter experts in place there. Um, And really, and particularly now in the digital world as well, you know, I really need to have people who can be subject matter experts educating me. Mm -hmm. Because uh, while I might have done and been a doer of many of those programs in the past, (laughs) you Mm -hmm. know, some of those activities didn't exist when I started in fundraising, going back to your original question. Um, and as regarding to how to get the best, um, well in part it starts with the recruitment process. Um, so one thing in particular, um, I think we're quite good in our recruitment process. So we, we look to recruit uh, like-minded people. We look at the behavioral traits of their CV. So if I see a perpetual mover, you know, someone who's been there in a charity for a year, 18 months, maybe two years, they're telling you they're likely to behave in the future so we're looking at for to recruit people who are passionate inspirational want to engage do greater good but they're also data-driven and then once they come on board really my job is to empower them so to try and give them the tools to be successful in their job and um, uh, I do joke I don't and um, sometimes I regret <laughs> the work that it causes me and what I mean by that is um, I don't recruit yes people. I recruit people who will challenge me, who will, but they will come with a, a rationale and a science to their decision-making process. And so to get the best out of them, I try to give them those parameters. And those parameters can move, and often they challenge me, and I go, well, you know what, That's, um, you're right, we should adjust that accordingly. Um, so again, it's empowering them, giving them the parameters and the tools. Um, and you know, supporting their decisions. Um.
0: Yeah, it's, it's great to hear that you uh, welcome a um, environment which where you're challenging each other. I, I, I see that <laughs> sometimes <as a> <laughs> <laughs> I regret it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, s- I hear that as a as a familiar trend amongst um, organisations doing well. So it's definitely something to um, consider for many organisations out there. Speaking about challenging environments, how do you get buy-in from the CEO or board members that what you're the goals and vision for fundraising you're setting are the way forward?
1: Sometimes I think it's quite easy to actually be critical of boards and things of that nature and um, about you know the lack of understanding they have in fundraising and so forth. Um, so I do think there's a greater duty, and I think we have to take greater responsibilities as fundraisers of learning how to articulate that to the respective boards. Um, and if we can't do that successfully, I think it's quite hard to criticize mm-hmm. boards or a little unfair to, to criticize uh, board members. So again, I've talked about the power of language. Even internally within the sector, there's misunderstanding around certain language, whether it be cultivation, donor, supporter, a member of the, d- uh, the public. We need to be clear on those communications and how we use them. And therefore, then, when we talk up and, uh, to our st- uh, stakeholders or, and engage with them, we need to make sure that we can adapt our language to their understanding. Um, internally, here at Peter Mac, um, you know, you'll hear research and your eyes will slightly glaze over with their depth of science. Mm-hmm. If I talk about our scientific approach to fundraising, their eyes will often glaze over. So it's my job to translate that appropriately and then back it up with the data and be evidence-based and uh, demonstrate that. And if you're evidence-based, I think you're going to have a greater opportunity to uh, bring the, uh, the board uh, on the journey. And, um, and that's the same for any, I think, stakeholder. Um, and also uh, with the board and the, and the respective CEO is um, look at that comp- board composition. I think um, not just to have the one Token person who's a business person or a fundraiser—it's easier said than done. But um, where I've seen the greatest success is where you've got a um, a greater proportion of business people and uh, fundraiser representatives on the board and understand that financial net return objective. I think you see greater success and understanding. Mm. But you've got to manage up, and I, I don't think you can um, absolve yourself. Of that responsibility in that process. Earlier, you mentioned around
0: fundraising language, using the right language to communicate um, effectively with donors. Can you give some examples or tips in regards to how an organisation can be better doing
1: that? Um, I think there's a. I don't think there's a single approach, really. You know, you've got to understand your donor and identify their characteristics and the language that um, they relate to. So, and that's one thing I think that. Um, we do quite well at Peter Mac, we often talk about the right person engaging with the right donor at the right time Mm -hmm. and um, I might have a certain type of style and language that's more suitable for one constituent so you know I'll be rotated in for that one and someone else may have a different ethical background that might be an advantageous so they can culturally relate to the individual so really it's about adapting your language to their language Mm -hmm. um, and being cognizant of that Uh, and it's really easy we'll have our own internal fundraising acronyms the sector does that Um, you know uh, you'll see it in surveys when we go out to our constituents if uh, and you'll put in there are you intending to uh, leave a gift in your will are you considering um, leaving a gift in your will and so suddenly we la- start to label these donors as intenders and considerers, but the data demonstrates they don't see themselves as different, but we've already put them into that pigeonhole. So if you start to talk to them as a considerer or intender, they're not going to relate to it. So you have to adapt the, uh, the language to the clues uh, that they're giving you. So I always say. You know, for me, fundraisers are good detectives, and your job is to detect the appropriate language to adapt, to relate to your constituent. Um, And that would be, again, if you look at the motivations of some high net worth individuals, if they're a socialite, um, you want to be demonstrating a positive uh, impact within their social, uh, sorry, within their community, that you can talk uh, that language and reflect that someone that has um, for example a, a faith-based background that your language reflects and acknowledges their motivational giving so it's our job to adapt it's not a one-size-fits-all
0: yeah yeah that's great and do you do, do the by certain persona exercises or just evaluating using the data and the database to uh, um, segment who you're talking to
1: um, we well I've done a couple of exercises I've uh, with the teams in the past I've uh, done a Maya Briggs uh, exercise so that first of all they can identify their own personality Mm -hmm. and how they might communicate and then again the seven faces of philanthropy I think is a really good um, kind of general oversight of who your constituents are which areas they're likely to fall into whether it's altruistic you know they're a uh, community-based person you know they want to pay back and the like Um, and then I think you take that principles of looking internally at yourself and go, well, I behave this way. So I do think there's a good degree of self-awareness of all fundraisers required. I think the more self-aware you are, the more likely you are to go, ah, I behave this way, I talk this way, this is really good here. In this environment, I have to adapt to that. And um, I think that's one of the um, uh, challenges of fundraising and uh, also when it comes to you know major gift managers and uh, philanthropy managers. Um, that's the skill that you're looking for in them.
0: You mentioned earlier that you, you have a mentor and you've, um, you've learned a lot from um, agencies, but how do you continually learn about the fundraising profession?
1: Uh, I think I joke that sometimes now I'm a bit of uh, Scrooge and I sit there going mm-hmm. bar humbug and um, I'm a bit of a Grinch. Um, and that's really just, you know, uh, I've become this old dinosaur within the sector now. And I uh, can't believe I've got here so, um, and the like but really while I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek um, I still go to as many conferences as, um, as I possibly can I generally go to something that uh, I think um, I, I'm unaware of uh, to challenge uh, myself um, you know I'm looking at what's coming down the horizon uh, try and engage with people even you know um, uh, across a whole myriad of different. Uh, fundraising gamuts just to constantly challenge myself and uh, and question is my current perception of this uh, accurate Um, I'm on boards I continue to appropriately uh, network Um, yeah I I take um, inquiries and conversations even like this one Mm -hmm. that you go okay maybe this person I've not heard about has got something new to to add and, and, and challenge me, and, and I read up, and it makes it sounds like I'm doing it perfectly, <laughs> which is not the case whatsoever. Um, um, you know, I took my CFRE not so uh, about a few years ago, and um, at the time I remember thinking, "Well, I'm, I'm an experienced fundraiser. Um, you know, why should I go and do an exam?" And um, uh, but I went, "No, you know, really, if we want." to be credible to our donors, to the public, we should be, have greater accreditation uh, as a sector. So um, uh, I went and did that, and uh, that was a learning exercise. You know, I read books that I probably should have read moons ago. And um, I I identified further gaps in, or not my knowledge, but maybe it's better put, further areas of of improvement. Uh, But I'm like, oh, I hadn't considered it that way. And a good one would be you know ethical considerations for the board, and um, some of the quandaries around that, um, some of the nuances around ethical solicitation for high net worth individuals and so through going through that exercise, um, I, f- I had a little uh, a further expansion of my knowledge uh, circle for better definition, um, so never uh, rest on your laurels. Um, I never think for one moment that I know it all. Um, I look to my team to learn very much as well. And um, I think that's a learning culture and a, an ethos that we have at Peter Mac. Um, and I think that might just be in me. And I think it's in my team, too, that they equally uh, want to learn. But I remember back at my World Vision days when I was doing uh, face-to-face uh, campaigns and training the teams. and. We'd had some very successful uh, Christmas appeal campaigns uh, in, the, in the shopping centers. And each year we get a number of new recruits and I'd be training them. And I'd throw it out there and I said, one of you is gonna come out with the next new idea that we're gonna implement in this year and next year's campaign. And you could see them all kind of go, oh, wonder if that's gonna be me. And sure enough, someone would come up with it and I'd go, why haven't we done that for the last three years? That is gold yeah. um, so I get a real kick when that happens um, and the team gets a kick yeah. so um, so really I think it's a very broad answer but having a, a learning culture and a learning philosophy is is the answer to that question
0: yeah great and what do you think will change in the fundraising prof- profession most in the next 10 years
1: I think people are going to keep looking for that new new one. Digital may play a part in that. Um, so, from an acquisition point of view, I think the, I think it's unclear to tell the truth. What I think will be changing, and I don't think the sector has grappled with that, is transactional preference of the donor. And what do I mean by that? If you went back twenty years, you'd talk about check was king you know combined with cash in certain places but really it was checks checks are, are slowly uh, maybe come into an end of their lifespan we don't know exactly when so that will affect the channel credit cards so credit cards and direct debits. so those choices and even those are changing and the costs associated with them so you have Apple pay and other modes of, you know uh, of payment and I that the clever charities they're able to facilitate that which is not the motivation for giving it's the back end side. I think that accommodating that could be how best to secure scale in the future
0: mm, yeah great answer so what 's next for you <laughs>
1: uh, that's a good question um, hopefully uh, much of the same um, you know I I reflect you know your opening remarks of how and why I got into this sector was hopefully to do good and have impact and uh, help others and I've got two young children uh, two young girls and uh, you know really many ways my number one objective is that you know in 20 years time that they're really proud of uh, their dad and uh, the impact that he had uh, on others and Uh, hopefully it's it's, uh, Peter Mack still having that impact because it still feels uh, like a new job Um, and I have a picture at home from my World Vision days of two uh, African children that uh, uh, represents you know it was a going away present after hopefully having some real impact at World Vision and uh, raising funds that really hopefully saved you know a lot of uh, children's lives overseas or hopefully Im- impacted in a positive way their lives and you know I hope uh, I'm still having that impact and that my children drive past this amazing building at Peter Mack look up at that and go yeah you know my dad had that impact and there are other people going out there um, making the world I know it's a bit cheesy well, but, a, but, a, but a better place and yeah uh, you know, so more of the same, I'm hoping.
0: Yeah, well, we're down to the very last question. So thank you, Carl, for coming on Fulfilled. Um, what's your final piece of advice to inspire Fulfilled Fundraisers to make a positive impact and create change for a better world?
1: Um, I think, first of all, it sounded a bit cheesy, but you know, believe in yourself. Um, be evidence-based in your uh, decision-making process and justification for who you should engage with and cultivate and solicit. Um, Be inspirational um, in your outward communications, be emotive in your outward communications, but be non-emotive in your analytics and your decision-making processes within the office. And I think if you've got that foundation um, to help you understand as well to best engage with individual donors, I think you've got a good um, um, chance of being successful. And then the other final piece is never apologize for being a fundraiser. Maybe change your title, because mm-hmm. the fundraiser is a terrible title, but it's a wonderful thing that we do.
0: How great advice. Carl, thank you. My pleasure.